0: good to be here good to meet so many of you last night just an awesome time of fellowship together and I always enjoy working with Paul White he's one of the I think premier preachers of our day and one of the leaders of grace and you can always just trust that you're going to get a good word when you hear him preach so it's always a great privilege to work with him I told him walked up to him while ago I said are you Paul White shook his hand I said I'm a huge fan he said, but I really am hallelujah I want to open this morning we're going to share in this session Uh, from Luke, the 10th chapter. I think that's where I'm going to go this morning. And probably it may take me uh, maybe both of my sessions to be able to unpack this a little bit. But I'm going to go to verse 25 of Luke, the 10th chapter, verse 25. It said, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before I move on much with this, uh, let me tell you this uh, audience relevance and what time slot they're in is highly, highly important to me because if you don't understand where they're at in their thinking and what covenant is being dealt with, you won't know how to answer some questions. How many know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the New Testament, but they are still in the Old Covenant? How many of you know that? How I many know there's some stuff in the Old, the Old Testament that's not necessarily Old Covenant? And there's some stuff in the New Testament that's not necessarily New Covenant. How right. I many know that one of the key things for me early when I begin to understand grace, and we've talked a little bit about our journeys a little bit in our fellowship last night, but when I begin to understand grace, I was in the ministry before I realized, and there are a lot of people like this. I was in the ministry before I realized that the new covenant is not an addendum to the old one. How I many know it's a completely different covenant? And uh, honestly, unless you're a Jew, God never gave you the law. So thank you for that thunder. amen. <laughs> But uh, uh, what I want you to see is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are are uh, are, are a transitional. Jesus is introducing the kingdom, and they're talking about the kingdom is coming. It's imminent. It's 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 on the scene. But when he's asked this question by a lawyer, we got to understand, first of all, that these lawyers are not like our secular lawyers. These guys were professionals at knowing the law of Moses and had literally watered the law down to it, had become kind of manageable. And so he's asking Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first of all, to me, that's an oxymoron of a question because I mean, no, you don't do anything to inherit how I many know if you if if you inherit something it's because somebody died and left you something? Somebody wave your Bible at me for a minute. Hallelujah! Yeah, well, devices and Bibles everywhere. Hallelujah! See, that's I, I'll say it like this: Just imagine this is actually printed page Bible. We got everything. It's amazing we've got these devices that have access to every book almost on the planet. Every, you know, we could go back and look at what the early church fathers, we could see all kind of resources, but we play Candy Crush with it. (laughs) I think we're just figuring out what all they do. But imagine this is printed page. This is a copy of my father's will and testament. I mean, a testament is a will. I mean, Dad wrote a will one day. It might be good to read your copy of it. If you don't, you're going to settle out of court. Touch your neighbor and say, but I got an attorney on retainer who's never lost a case. Jesus Christ, the righteous who, come on, hallelujah, who has never lost, he ever lives to litigate. Make intercession, hallelujah. But he wrote a will and, and then, you know, he had a son and the son was such an incredible businessman that the father got richer and dad had so much fun with his first son, he said, I think I'm just going to bring many sons into glory. So he rewrote a new will and included us in the will. Yeah. Now that's powerful in itself. Yeah. But the writer of the book of Hebrews said, without the death of the testator, the will is not effective. So he wrapped himself in human flesh and came and died so I could get what's in the will. And that's pretty good. But he got back up from the dead to be the administrator of his own will to make sure we get what he said we could have. And how I mean, one of the things we are is we're heirs together of the grace of life. And because of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, we can reign in life by one Christ Jesus. And so, uh, you know, when he's asking him this question, what must I do, many places that Jesus would be asked this question, he would simply say to them, he'd, he'd go down through, if you want to know what you got to do, here's the rules. In other words, if you want to earn this, this is what you got to do. And how I many of this lawyer went down through there, you know, and, and several places where they would come and ask him that, but they would always, somewhere towards the end of that, they would say, yet thou lackest one thing. Because how I many of under the law, you're always coming up short. I tell people, see, I was raised in classical Pentecost under what I call terrorist preachers. They were the guys who would get up every Sunday morning and invite you to a last day barbecue and you were what was on it. And in those days, come on, you, you were going to hell for stuff you wouldn't even send people to jail for. And I probably shouldn't mimic them, but I will anyway because I do it every now and then. But I, they would come in. We would have revival back in those days. And, and everything you could imagine was a sin. And our revivals did the last two or three days. They were six weeks long. And you better be in church every night or you're going to go to hell. And they'd come in, and this dude must, you know, his wife looked like Granny from the Beverly Hillbillies, and he looked like he fell off the cover of Botany 500 because he was dressed to the hilt, and his wife couldn't wear makeup or none of that stuff. And he looked like he must have picked a fight with her on the way to church cause, just to get his game face on because he looked like he was kind of mean, you know. Because the longer you in religion, the meaner you get. And then he'd rear back and he'd usually have suspenders on. He'd parry, pull his pants about midway up his chest, his glasses down on his nose, and he'd say, You want me to name sin? <laughs> you gotta hack when you do that. <laughs> I'm gonna name it this morning. <laughs> Some of you women came in here with makeup on your Jezebel face. <laughs> you got head levelers on your head, and a television set up in your living room. <laughs> Devil's horns on your roof. Ha. You want God. You gotta stretch God out on one side and the world on the other. And you want to compromise. And he'd shake his jaws when he'd say compromise. <laughs> and so I got saved every Sunday. <laughs> Because by the time they got done naming sin, I thought it's a pretty good possibility I'm lost. I thought I was saved last Sunday, but I had to give them a midweek courtesy dip because if you don't, you know, they're going to sing just as I am without one plea and 37 stanzas later, if you don't come, they're going to come get you. So I think if I don't get saved soon, they're going to close the pizza hut, just give them a courtesy dip, we're out of here. I probably shouldn't even tell these stories because I tell them a lot, but, you know, I I, I remember one time they, and about the time you thought you saved, they'd come up, them rascals would invent a new sin, and there I would be lost again because the whole goal is how many people we can get in the altar, and then I can go to my next meeting and say, we had 100 people got saved in that last meeting, except we failed to tell them it's the same 100 people get saved every time I go because I'm going to talk them out of their salvation and then I'm going to offer it to them again and they're going to get saved until after a little while it's a religious treadmill of trying to earn something that's already yours by inheritance. Yeah. What happens is it shuts up faith, but I remember one time they started preaching against, in those days they preached against even Coca-Cola and I said to my pastor, what about a Coca-Cola is going to take me to hell? And he couldn't even talk to him in his regular voice, he had to talk to him in his preacher voice. He said, son, You got to drink that Coca-Cola from a bottle and somebody going to think it's something else and going to ruin your testimony. And I'm thinking, then don't drink a root beer because that's a brown bottle. Why don't we preach against root beer? (laughs) Then he said to me, he looked at me, he said, son, that Coca-Cola is shaped like a woman and it's liable to make you lust. And I'm like 16 years old. I said, thanks for that image, you know. So I struggled with Coke till I got in my 40s, and then, <laughs> then they came out with three-liter bottles, and I got over it. <laughs> but the side effects of religion have robbed a lot of people. And so after a little while, it shuts up faith, and you finally think, I know I'm going to hell, you know, and so if I'm going to go to hell, at least I'm going to enjoy the ride. And so I walked away from what I thought was God really never left. He never left me because God's a stalker. How many of you know that? He's like Forrest Gump. He'll take you back when all you got's is one dying breath because stupid is what stupid does. But it, I mean, he still loves you. It just stalks you. He would be there while you're laying in the ditch saying, are you done yet? I still love you. I can't stop loving you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I am not mad at you. I am mad about you. I won't live without you. I refuse to live without you. Hallelujah. I would leave the splendors of heaven. I think it's amazing that the first Adam, I could see the moment he begins to take, uh, uh, you know, uh, the woman had fallen. The scripture said that the man was not deceived. It was the woman that was deceived as he reached, and I know it wasn't a literal apple, but stay with me here just a moment. But he got ready to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I could see God look over at Michael and Gabriel and say, he's going to leave us. He's going to leave us. Just let me have a little poetic liberty here this morning. Michael probably looked at at God and said, how do you know he's going to leave us? God said, it's because it's what I would do. I would leave heaven myself and go get my bride. The problem is the first Adam did it out of rebellion, and the last Adam did it out of obedience. Left the splendors of heaven and came... To get his bride, Hallelujah! That's how much he loves us. He did it out of obedience, Hallelujah! And and let me just let me just come back here. and Not chase too many rabbits here this morning. But when I think about this, let me just stretch you just a little bit. He said, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And uh, you know, I, I I came across this this translation. Somebody read from a translation in passing, and because I know a little bit of the Greek stuff, I know that this word "eternal" is the Greek word "aeonian" or uh, it, it, is, it is a word that has to do with an age or uh, aeonian, the life of the age. Now, let me just say this to you. Let me preface what I'm about to say by saying this. Say this with me. He believes, he believes eternal life, eternal life includes, includes going to heaven when you, die. when you die. But it's much more than that. See, I don't know if we realize that eternal life is not just a trip to heaven one day. But in the mind of the first century Jews standing here, it was like just talking about heaven. It was the life of the coming age. Now, see, that to me is a real shift in my thinking. It includes going to heaven, but Jesus defined eternal life like this. He said, this is life aeonian, or the life of the coming age, that you would know God the Father and the Son. In other words, life the life of the coming age to the mind of this first century Jewish lawyer is living life or what Jesus would define it is living life in the context of sonship that the age that was coming was not going to be about being a slave or a servant because under the old covenant you're a slave and a servant but in the new covenant you're a son and if you're a son, then you're an heir. Hallelujah. And so the reality of it is, is he's talking to him something above this slave mentality of being a servant. And I mean, that's the stuff a lot of times we've been preached to, even in the American churches, we are servants of God. And and, and while I believe we serve, we are not servants, slaves trying to be sons. We are sons who serve. Hallelujah. And we don't serve because we're trying to earn something. We serve because we're co-owners and we're heirs together of the grace of life. And we're heirs of this eternal life, this life of the coming age. And that includes, going to heaven when you die. But I'm so glad I found out that this is not just about living 70 years of misery here and then one of these days I get to go there. Yes. But Jesus began to preach thy kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I'm just going to share some of my journey a little bit. I just wanted to show you see where I'm coming from. But one of the things in the early days, probably in the 90s, I began to come across scriptures and I won't, I'm going to stretch you a little bit, but I won't be too heavy. Hebrews 1.1 was a real powerful scripture to me. He said, God who at sundry times in times past and in divers manners spoke to us in, through, and by the sun, hath, say hath. Touch your neighbor, tell him that's past tense. He hath in these last days spoken to us by the son. So he's making a comparison that God, who at sundry time and times past spoke to us in through by the Old Testament prophets, is speaking now in the person of a son. Yes. But the thing that caught my attention is whatever your paradigm is, you, you, you grab scriptures or we read over them with a lot of times preconceived ideas. And how many have understood since grace came on the scene, the scriptures become brand new. Yeah. Pieces start to fit together. Yeah. Stuff actually starts to make sense in context. And so when I saw this thing about God hath in these last days, immediately whatever you think about last days is your mind's going to go, well, God's talking about us, but he wasn't writing to us. That book was written to Hebrews. How do I know that? It's the title of the book. (laughs) Real, literal, first century Hebrews. And whoever wrote this, I think it was Paul, or at least influenced by the apostle Paul says, God has in these last days spoke to us by the son. So Paul thought he was living in the last days of something. Is that, is, that, is that comfortable enough so far? Now, if Paul was the only one that would say something like that, I would say, well, maybe he was beat a lot, let down over walls and baskets, spent a lot of time in Roman jails. He was snake bit, beaten, you know, (laughs) all the stuff he went through. Maybe they just beat him silly until he couldn't really think clear, so he just thought he was living in the last days. And that's what many scholars tell us. is they, they, Well, these guys believe they were living in the last days because everybody believes they have to be living in the last days. I said, well, what else did they believe then that they were wrong about? I mean, if you're going to get on that, it's a pretty slippery slope. And so if he was the only apostolic witness that would say something like that, then I'd say, well, it's probably a mistranslation or what have you. But then the apostle Peter stands up, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost just fell. They're standing there talking in tongues and who can shine and having a great old Pentecostal time? And Pete stands up. He said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel that in the last days. He didn't say this is what will happen when Pensacola has a revival. He said, this is that. This is the fulfillment of the prophetic word of Joel that in the last days, that was 2,000 years ago, that Peter also said something about the last days. And then the apostle John stands up in one of his epistles. He said, little children, we know, we don't think it is. We know that it is the last time because Antichrist is already on the scene. And I like to say this, that was before Osama, Obama, Chelsea's mama, or the last Trump. (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to be eschatological here this morning, except to tell you whatever you think about eschatology or end time stuff is not, not the subject matter here this morning, except to say they were living in the last days of something. And what really puts me over the edge to begin to see Grace in the kingdom is what I discovered. It was the last days, not of a cosmic collapse. It was the last days of a covenant or a covenantal era. In other words, it was the last days not of a cataclysmic destruction but the last days of an absolute passing away of an old covenant age and the birthing of a new covenant age. The life of the coming age was going to be a life lived I feel the Holy Ghost did here. Life lived in the context of sonship where now the governor is not come on rules on rocks, but the Holy Spirit. I like to give this powerful comparison that when the children of Israel left Egypt, they were delivered by the blood of a spotless lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost of the house and took the lamb inside the house. Moses said, God, give me the strategy for how to get out of this bondage. He said, tell him, eat more lamb. (laughs) Touch your neighbor, tell him nothing but mutton. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And they started, you see, and let me say this as well, because I think it's powerful points. We say things like this, that that when when they put the blood on the doorpost, it said to the death angel, this house escapes. That's only partly true. What the blood on the doorpost of the house said to the death angel is there's already been a death exacted here. The death of the lamb was the death of the firstborn. And you start feeding on that. You start feeding on that finished work. You start feeding on the truth of what the cross of Calvary produced. And at midnight, they got enough lamb in their belly. They got up out of bed and put their shoes on their feet and their staff in their hand. And they said, I can't live in this bondage anymore. Can I tell you that's what's happened probably to many people in this conference this morning is you got a little bit of lamb in your belly one day and realized, hey, I can't live in this religious bondage anymore. No matter what, I don't care if it's substance abuse or any kind of bondage. I can't live in this bondage. It is the answer to it is get something. Come on. Hallelujah. How many know that all, all of our problems started with an eating disorder in Eden's Misty Garden when God said don't eat that tree and he ate the tree and our problems started with an eating disorder when God got ready to deliver from bondage. He said, well, we going to do let's eat. Because you can eat your way out of the problem, and if you can eat your way out of the problem, I have an anointing for this. I mean, the night before his decease, Jesus that night takes the bread and breaks it. He desired to eat this Passover. We take it casually, but when he looked across the table, how I many of the reason he desired to eat this Passover? was because he knew this is the last lamb that would ever have to be sacrificed. And he was inaugurating a new covenant when he said, this is my cup, this body, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, this bread is my body, and I won't drink wine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in Acts chapter 2, he popped the cork on a vintage of wine that had never been drunk before, and they toasted the coming of the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, it's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's located in the Holy Ghost. And if you've got the Holy Ghost inside of you, the kingdom of God is presently. Right now, here in this room. Yeah. Yeah. But let me say this to you: they left Egypt delivered by the blood. They crossed the Red Sea, they're delivered by water. So they're blood bought, water baptized. Can you see the pictures? The new covenant writers said they were baptized into the sea, into Moses. Now, how many know in the new covenant were baptized into Christ? But this is the point I'm after. Exactly 50 days after they left Egypt exactly 50 days, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. Don't have time to qualify this this morning, but God didn't want to give them the law. That was not the covenant God wanted to give them. He brought them out of Egypt on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, and he wanted to make a whole nation of priests out of everybody where everybody would have access to him. But when the people saw God on the mountain, they said, we're afraid of him, Moses. You go talk to him. And and whatever he says to you, we will do it. And if we do it, it will be our righteousness. Wrong answer. Deuteronomy 5 gives you the backstory. God said, I hearken to your voice. I heard you in your tent saying, I don't, we're afraid of him. And God was so serious about having a relationship. But how many know, when you forfeit a personal relationship with God as a nation of priests, when you forfeit a personal relationship with God, you have to have a mediator system. So God sent Aaron up his son, up the mountain. And let's give them some rules. Because if you don't have a relationship, you got to have rules. And the less relationship you have, the real rules you have to have. See, I really believe Galatians 3, God said the law was added because of a transgression. I don't think it was just Adam's transgression. I think it was they transgressed the Abrahamic covenant that only required that you believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't have time to qualify a lot of that. That's not my subject matter this morning, but here's what I'm at. And the Bible said that that law was only added as an addendum until, say until. The seed should come to whom the promise was made. So the last days of that covenant had come to the end because the seed to whom the promise was made had now showed up on the scene. And guess what he wanted to do? Restore you back to personal relationship with God as a nation of priests. And Peter grabbed a hold of that and he said, you're a chosen generation. You're a Royal, where everybody has access to God. Yeah. Study church history 300 years after Jesus, uh, you know, after the, the, the new covenant is inaugurated, they start reinstituting a priestly system, denying you access. You have to come through a priest and a mediator for, for hundreds of years they, until Luther stood up and said, the just shall live by faith. And there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but you're not putting me back in a box. I've got personal relationship and access to the King of glory right now. And welcome to come into his presence, and so do you. Don't ever think you're not good enough. I was sitting at a restaurant the other day, one what we eat at quite a bit. And, just, you know, we, I live in such a small town. Everybody knows, knows each other. And, and uh, the, the, the lady that was there was talking something about the weather. And she said, well, maybe you should ask him. You've got greater access than I do. I said, oh, no. I said, you might be surprised. I said, God, don't have any, he don't have any, I don't have any more access to him than you do. He, I said, matter of fact, he's probably anxious to hear from you. <laughs> he's missed you see, people think in terms of I'm alienated. You know know what I'm saying? In other words, we become aliens in our own minds, and God is trying to get us to drop our guard and just let him love on us and embrace us in his presence because you cannot get in his presence that it doesn't transform you. Now, let me stop chasing rabbits here this morning, but the moment God came down on the mountain and gave the people the law, I call it rules on rocks. The moment God gave them the law... 3,000 people dropped dead. Fast forward to the new covenant. Jesus is the real Lamb of God. Exactly 50 days after Jesus, exactly, same amount of time as it was when they left Egypt to Sinai. 50 days. Pentecost Sunday comes, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. The reason it's Pentecost is because Pentecost means 50. 50 days after the Passover, they're in an upper room. And this time, another cloud fills the room. Except this time, God don't give them rules on rocks. He gives them the Holy Ghost. And guess what? Exactly 3,000 people are added to the church. Why is that? Under the old covenant, the letter kills. In the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And I I say this as boldly as I can because I think this is a powerful and important key, especially in grace circles, This may be the most important thing I'll say this weekend. So that the Holy Spirit is to the new covenant what the law was to the old covenant. And the reason preachers won't preach this is because they don't believe the Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit says he can do. But if the Holy Spirit can't transform your life, all the church sheriffs you get aren't going to get the job done. But when you receive the Holy Spirit, the kingdom comes. In my book out there called... Uh, from law to grace, a kingdom paradigm shift, what I do in that book is I talk about how John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what repentance means is to turn. And how many or turn about or to change one's mind? Metanoia is a Greek word. And how many know that what happens is is he's talking about turning from the government. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, For if the government of death, the government of death written on stone tablets was glorious, how about this government of affirmation. If the government of condemnation was good, how about this government of affirmation? So the old covenant was condemning and the new covenant is affirming. So when you turn from law, a lot of people, I thrilled a lot of crowds preaching freedom from law. I mean, people shout you down, run the house, and, 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 and have a good old time. We're free from the law, Brother Paul. And I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. But see, if you turn from law, that repentance is only, that's only, what you turn from is only half the equation. If you turn from law and don't turn toward the kingdom, the government of the Holy Spirit, you are going to be, and I know this is a play on words, you are going to be an untoward generation. But when our hearts turn toward the Lord, the veil is taken away. So a lot of people turn from religion, and that's usually the first response. I don't have time to unpack all this, but I'm going to chase this rabbit just a little bit. The first response sometimes with people who've been under bondage so long is they're testing the waters of freedom. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah. It is not an accident to me that when they came out of Egypt delivered. Let me, let me say this about Egypt. I used to think Egypt was a type of the world until I read Revelation 11 verse 8. Revelation 11 verse 8, it says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And all of a sudden I started thinking, I've read over that bunches of times and didn't realize our Lord was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. Our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit takes his finger and says, that's a city called, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. And all of a sudden I begin to, the bondage of Egypt that I'm coming out of, it's not just the world, it was religion. It was losing a slave mentality to be replaced with the sonship mentality where now I'm not governed by rules on rocks, but I've learned how to hear the Holy Spirit inside of me. Are you hearing where I'm coming from? Because they that are led by the Spirit, contrast that, not led by rules, led by the Spirit are sons. That's not spooky and weird. We, we, listen, I believe the Holy Spirit. Come on, we, we, know the, we know the Holy Spirit. You might try to override it. A lot of times, I mean, my pastor, uh, young people or people in general come to her and they'll say, well, is it all right if I do this? And, and she always says to him, well, it's all right with me if you can get past the Holy Ghost. Good answer. How many know the Holy Spirit can lead you to all kinds of stuff? I've had times when I, there are things that I have liberty and I felt the Holy Spirit check me and say, no, and thank, thankful that later I listened to that because it might have been offensive to somebody else. Because, <coughs> I mean, we need to get this out of selfie mode where everything's about my freedom, my this, my that, my that, and the other thing, and realize it's not I'm not just living for myself, I'm living for some other people too. Yes. You know, when Paul wrote uh, uh, to, the, the, to the, the Gentiles he was preaching to and he says, not you know, uh, the only thing we're requiring is that you uh, abstain from uh, meat offered to idols for fornication, which we were willing to do. But the reason he wrote them about the things offered to idols was because they were Gentile believers and they knew that it would be offensive to the Jewish people who just came out from underneath of if you eat anything that's got blood in it. But Paul came back later and said, listen, I know it's not offensive in the sense that it's not a God at all, but the reality of it is it may offend the people's conscience. And you've got to get this thing out of selfie mode where you're not just worried about my freedom and my personal space. Is that, is that Okay. And so I've helped the Holy Spirit check me and stuff like that before and and, and just say, no, no. But I wanted to say to you that that what he was talking about here, the bondage he was leading them out of was a a religious bondage. And so uh, the inheritance that they were coming into in the New Testament, the inheritance of the promised land is not a piece of real estate. Hebrews 4 tells us that the promised land in the New Covenant is rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ In Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. I don't know if you've ever went back and read the book of Deuteronomy even, where he talks about the curses of the law. And as he's given, I mean, if you go down through this curses, what is it, about 28 or 29 of of Deuteronomy, they would say, you're cursed if you move a man's, you know, border. And the people would say, amen. You're cursed if you do this. And the people said, Amen. You're cursed if you do that. And the people said, Amen. And every single one of those curses, as they read them out loud, the people said, Amen to. And then you come to the next chapter, and he starts saying, you're going to be blessed in the city. You're going to be blessed in the field. You're going to be blessed coming in. You're going to be blessed coming out. Put it in a nutshell. You're going to bless your kids, your cows, and your cash. And nobody said, Amen. Nobody. <laughs> Not one Amen. Amen. How many know people will shout you down if you preach law? I mean, come on. I've got I I, I call it abuse abused spouse syndrome. I used to, you know, when I was, you know, you heard me do that a while ago, somebody said, You do that awful good. Such were some of us. Yeah. <laughs> How many of we preach what we what we heard somebody else say to the Holy Ghost begin to give revelation? Are you hearing where I'm coming from? But what I begin to see was is that, you know, uh, nobody said amen to the blessing because it's almost like it's too good to be true. But I like what it says to one of the churches in Revelation. Jesus said, I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness and I am the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, I'm the final amen to the curse, but I'm also the amen to the blessing. So in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. See there, somebody said amen here. Amen. Uh, you know, if you read the, uh, Malachi chapter 4, the last verse, he'll, I'll come and smite the earth with the curse. The last few words of Revelation. Uh, uh, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. amen. Old Testament is with the curse. New Testament is with grace. And somebody finally said Amen. amen. Because it's so be it. I want it in my life. I want, listen, I'll tell you what, what a journey this has been. As I begin to find the freedom of the life of this coming age, it was such a powerful thing to me because it starts to give you back your life. The real gospel will give you back your life. Now, I'm not getting far, but I want to get this at least, and I'm pick up some other things a little bit later on. Go back the, uh, into Luke 10. We just kind of got sidetracked there. Not really. That's where we wanted to go. There we go. And a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? So when you're under law, you've got to find the legal loopholes. Either that or you got to find somebody worse shape than you are keeps the heat off of you. You uncover somebody else's sin, they ain't watching you. Help me, Lord. Hallelujah. pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to pure grace in Mobile, Alabama (laughs) and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatever you spend more when I come again, I will repay thee. Now which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? The, the whole message here is, first of all, whatever cost to make you better, he's paid the price for. Because, see, I don't believe grace leaves you in the condition you're in. I believe grace is also a teacher. The grace of God teaches us, Titus said, to deny ungodliness. Grace is a teacher. Grace empowers its unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, but it's also grace works in my life. I've had more real, honest-to-goodness transformation in the climate of freedom than any other. And, you know, I mean, we learn how to fake it on the other stuff. I heard a guy preach a message one time, fake it till you make it. I thought, well, boy, that's pitiful. Because that's exactly what we were doing. We were learning how to put the mask on and justify ourselves and find the legal loopholes in the law. But the truth of it is, is the law is designed to bring you to the end of yourself and realize, I need a Savior. <laughs> I can't do this on my own. I will say this because I was started to say it a while ago. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, again, once they came out of Egypt after 400 and some years in bondage, they've been under bondage for years. This started to concern me in the early days when I started preaching grace. I started seeing stuff happen because if you've been in bondage your whole life, you don't know how to handle freedom. So people start testing the waters of freedom to see how much freedom do I really have. It is not an accident that in the book of Exodus, one of their first stops is they stopped at the wilderness of sin. The wilderness of sin. That's not an accident. Because they're going to test the waters of freedom. I'm free. I'm free. I'm Facebook free. You know what that is. That's, I mean, I'm like, just because you can don't mean you should. And if you do, don't post it on Facebook. Because Facebook has never opened the eyes of the blind or made the lame to walk, lame to walk but it sure hasn't enabled the dumb to speak. You know what happened at the wilderness of sin? The water got bitter. God didn't leave them. And you know what else happened? They got severe diarrhea. That water that got in that, the water, there was something in that water that caused severe, I don't got time to unpack all that. I said, God, why did you allow them to drink that water that caused severe diarrhea? He said, I was trying to get the Egyptian crap out of them. (laughs) The Greek word for that is scabola. <laughs> I'm the only preacher you know of that knows the Greek word for <laughs> <laughs> Are we okay? Yeah. Touch your neighbor, tell him scabola happens. <laughs> <laughs> and see, when you first, I, I, I almost, when I first started preaching grace, almost thought about, what well, not I almost I've driven down the road dealing with all kinds of situations because we had hit the wilderness of sin and some of the groups that I was preaching and we had a lot of stink in the game, a lot of scabola. But the the next thing that happened was uh, that God showed Moses a tree. He said, what do I got to do to make the water sweet here? Because let me know, God won't leave you, but your wife will. Then you got two house payments, child support. I got a friend who's been married four times. I got to be careful not to say his name. Guy was a contractor, and he came to me after his fourth marriage. He said, "Brother, house." He said, "I think what I'm going to do is just find a woman I hate every five years and build her a new home." (laughs) I said, "Brother, listen. Is it possible? Have you ever considered the possibility that yeah, you maybe if you had one bad one." Or two bad ones, they might be the problem. Have you ever considered the possibility that you might be the problem after four of them? Has that ever dawned on you? You know, either that or you got a real bad taste for bad women. But what I'm saying is God doesn't leave you coming through all that stuff, but there's a lot of pain that goes with it. You understand where I'm coming from? There are repercussions to people's actions. And the bottom line is, is I want to avoid as much pain as I possibly can because this is about giving you an abundant life. I'm not getting far here this morning, but it's about this life. It's about an abundant life that could absolutely be, I, I, I tell you, since I got a hold of this, I am having the time of my life. I am enjoying my journey. I am going to have fun, fun, fun till daddy takes the T-bird away. For some of you older folks, you know that song. Hallelujah. I am, I mean, I for the first time truly have the joy of my salvation and my life and my journey is very fulfilled. I'm telling you, this gives you your life back because everything was robbing you. I'm going to get to there in just a moment. Hallelujah. But what happened is is the moment that not only did that water give them severe diarrhea to clean them out of all that Egyptian diet, but there was also something in that water. I think it had, I believe it was, um, uh, I can't think of the chemical that was in it or the element that was in it, but it also kept their legs from cramping if they were going to go on a long journey. So God was actually getting out the Egyptian mess and giving them something that would help them make the walk across the desert. So let me just say to you, if you're nervous because you're seeing some sin pop up in the camp, put the tree in the water, but stay with the message because the message really works because once they came out of that, their next stop, once you put, what do you mean put the tree in the water? How many of the trees are the type of the cross? Now, when I say put the tree to water, that doesn't mean I preach to you, you need to die, you need to die, you need to die. And what it means is you need to preach, you were crucified with Christ. That was your death. This is not who you are. This is who you are because of what that did. And you keep on feeding them a steady diet of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what will happen is one morning they'll throw their feet out of bed in the morning and say, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? So I, I begin to hear the Lord say, put a tree in it. And I begin to preach that and begin to stabilize a lot of the folks that were following our, our ministry. And this is not an accident. But after they left the wilderness of sin, next stop was Rephidim, which means rest. <laughs> because once you get a hold of this, it's going to bring you into an incredible rest. Now let me work this just a little bit more here because and then I'll pick up some of the latter part of it. This guy fell among thieves. Can you pull up for me John 10? Is that possible? John 10, the King James Version. John, you, or can you or not? If not, I'll pull it up. Okay. And John 10, I'm going to go there and read this. This guy fell among thieves who left him bleeding and dying. I could quote it for you, but most of you probably already know it. Verily I say unto you, verily, verily I say unto you, he that entereth not but the door into the sheepfold but climbeth up some other way. Say that with me. Some other way. Say it again. Some other way. Say it again. Some other way. The same is a thief and a robber. Hallelujah. Now, I just finished filming 28 TV programs on the seven times Jesus said I am. In full credit, I got a lot of inspiration from Paul White. He's got a phenomenal teaching on the book of John, and he made a statement in passing and exploded in my spirit, and I did 28 programs on (laughs) That's why I like getting around. People got something to say because I like to feed too. We probably spun it a little different in our teachings, but nevertheless, this is one of the I am's. He says, he that climbeth up uh, uh, entereth by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some of the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth. Now, I'm going to skip down because I don't want to take time to deal with all these scriptures. But verse number number, uh, 9, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy... I am come that they might have, this is why we call our TV program, that they might have life. That's what our TV programs is called, that you might have life. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, John 10, the thief cometh not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. Everybody I've ever been around says, boy, the devil will come to steal, kill, and destroy, except here's the deal. The devil's never mentioned in John 10. The thief of John 10 is not the devil. The thief of John 10 is, say this with me, some, some other, other way. way, the same as a thief and a robber. This guy this, that was left by the Jericho Road was left bleeding and dying by the thief of religion who was offering, come on, the way through another door that's not a door at all. Because every one of these seven I am's is in contrast to you thought that was the door. That's not the door. I'm the door. You thought that was the bread. That's not the bread. I'm the bread. Come on, somebody. You thought that was the light. That's not the light. I'm the light. And it was all in contrast to the Mosaic covenant and to Moses. And he said, you thought that was it. That's not it. I am. So you thought that was the way. The way is not religion. There is a way that seems right. Not wrong. This was a powerful shift for me. There is a way that seemeth right to a man, and the end thereof are, are the ways of death. The way that seemed right to me was law, legalism, and religion, but it was a thief to me, and the end was death. The end of the law is not life. It's called the law of sin and death for a reason because it doesn't produce life. That's why Jesus came and died. It's because the end of the law is death. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. So that his death satisfied all the demands, hallelujah, that the law could make on you, that when he got back up from the dead, you he was delivered for your offenses, but he was raised for your justification. And the fact that he got up tells me you've been justified, not on the basis of how good you are, but on the basis of how good he is. So the thieves of John 10, or when you think there's some other way and the other way, I thought, I started thinking about this whole, even just a few verses prior to this, in the chapter prior to that. Strive to enter into straight gate. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads not to heaven. It leads to life. See, we got to read what he's really saying here. A lot of times we read stuff into the text that's not there. We we think the gospel's about getting from here to there, and it's really about getting what's happening there to operate here. And we start reading about the kingdom. It's not talking about other world stuff. It's talking about this world stuff. Hallelujah. Oh, that's good stuff to me. It's about the kingdom, God, kingdom come. Your will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. Hallelujah. To bring you back to this relationship, an abundant life where you're living life out of a relationship with God literally in a garden, if you will. Now let me just let me just pick this piece up because when I used to think straight is the gate, narrow is the way. I can remember them terrorist preachers preaching this: straight is the gate, huh? narrow is the way, huh? and most of you gonna bust hell wide open. Huh? Broad is the way. You know, I could see myself taking an ST plunge in the lake of fire. <laughs> and then people come to me and say, Brother how's I'm gonna come to your church when I get my act together?" And I tell them, if you get your act together, it's just an act. God's not interested in actors. He's interested in authentic, real people. Pull your mask off. Oh, we're getting closer to that. Are you here where I'm coming from? Or I'm going to get, I need, Brother Howes. I need to get back on the straight and narrow. We think that means performance-based religion. The straight and narrow is not performance. The straight and narrow is Jesus. He's the way. He's, come on, he's the narrow. In other words, he's talking to a first century bunch of Jews who said, listen, straight as the gate narrow the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. There's a few of you Jews that are finding this new covenant life that leads to this incredible, wonderful, beautiful life. And there's very few of you all finding it. But you're finding the Broadway, and it's leading you right to destruction. And I'm going to tell you, even that whole system collapsed in AD 70 when it was literally brought to the ground and the elements melted with a fervent heat and all of that was gone. God so moved that thing off the scene they couldn't go back to Judaism if they wanted to oh uh, there's so much to say here but the reality of it is, is a lot of a lot of people right now believers want to go back to judaism and rebuild a temple in the middle east and offer an animal sacrifice yeah. to which i reply god got rid of the first one why do you want to try that again don't think excite me about a red heifer is a prime rib about that thick <laughs> if you cook it right i'll put it in feast of tabernacles I just happen to believe that the third temple is to be rebuilt. It's not in the Middle East. It's in the middle of this room right here. They're the temple of the Holy Ghost. I love how the Message Bible translated to Revelation 21. It says, look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He made his home with men. Amen. What part of Emmanuel don't we get? We sing about him like he's not in the room and he's going, hey, Yo. <laughs> Welcome into this place. And I get it. I'm not a, I'm not a you know, sometimes we, I, I, the grace police won't let you enjoy anything. You can hear it through any kind of paradigm you want, but I, sometimes we sing about him like he's not in the room, you know. And the truth of it, he's going, hey, I'm here. And we welcome into this place. And I heard him say to me one time, we were like saying, we invite you here and have free reign and full control. And I heard the Lord say to me, it's my house. <laughs> That would be like me saying with these wonderful people people that we're staying with, you guys just make yourself at home. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome to have free reign. (laughs) It's It's my house. I mean, that's that's how I see it. I mean, see, listen, we got to move away from this. He's somewhere distant. We want to keep a God who lives in a 10 by 10, most holy place somewhere out in space somewhere that shows up every now and then when we need a lucky rabbit's foot. But the truth of it is, is he lives and resides inside of us. God has moved into the neighborhood. Touch your neighbor. Say property values just went up because when God (laughs) moves in the neighborhood, he starts a major renovation program. I'm going to try to close with this thought, but the straight and narrow is not performance. It's Jesus. The door is Jesus. Everything else will leave you bleeding and dying and half naked and a religious system will cross the street on the other side to avoid you. Because they don't have it, they can point out your problem. Because listen, law can point out your problem, but it has no antidote for your remedy. Somebody said, "Y'all preaching greasy grace, giving people a license to sin." To which I reply, "Grace is not a license to sin; it is the antidote for it. For where sin abounds, that's where grace will super, hooper, hyper. If you've got hyper sin, you need hyper grace." Oh, I feel like shouting here a little bit now. Hallelujah. I love this stuff. Hallelujah. Because it will pick you up, find you bleeding and dying by religion. It'll bring you to a place like pure grace and end where they know you can get some help. And Jesus says, whatever it costs to make you better, whatever it cost, I paid the price. Whatever, And they begin to pour in oil and wine, and oil and wine are stuff from Zion, and Zion in Hebrews 12 is the new covenant. You have not come to blackness and darkness. You did not come to fear and trembling. You did not come to a God who says, stay away. You didn't come to a God who said, if you touch the mountain, you'll be thrust through the dark. You've come to Mount Zion. That's the new covenant. And there's oil and wine in Zion. And I believe we are in the midst of one of the greatest reformations since Luther. We will go down in history, Paul White, as apostolic reformers. I know that just as sure as I'm standing here. I'm sharing with some of the folks back in the, the back room. You know, because we closed caption our, our television program, but we put it on YouTube It'll translate in every language around the world. Wow. There is a massive reformation going on in Brazil. We were just in Brazil a few months back. Massive, massive res- reformation in in the Middle East right now. I had a, a Palestinian pastor ask me for permission to put my books in in Arab for Doha, Qatar, and Kuwait, and all through the God is touching people. We're hearing from people in Vietnam, in South Africa, in Europe. I'm telling you, not only heard from them, they have come here from... from, from, from uh, Uh, the Netherlands, come to my conference, and then I end up going back to the Netherlands and preaching in the Netherlands. They watched me on YouTube in Brazil and came to Berkeley Springs, and I went to Brazil, and this young guy named Gabriel, if you're watching Gabriel, Gabriel Manzoni, leading an awesome, incredible thing called Reform. And I mean, young people like crazy in America, you can't hardly get folk out on a Friday, Saturday because everything else is more important. But down there, if I wasn't a speaker, I wouldn't even got in the building. What are you saying? I'm telling you, there's a massive shift and God's putting something in the water called grace that's about to heal every problem we've got. Because I'm going to tell you right now, where we're at is not a place where we need more laws and legalism. And even some of the kingdom guys I've been around all my life are like, well, you know, we need to take over the government pass the laws that we need to to make it righteous. If law was the answer, Moses had it. You can't legislate righteousness. This has to be a heart issue this time. And when the church had the power to weld the sword, it was all kind of inquisitions and people died and were killed because of religion. I don't want that. I want a climate of freedom and let the Holy Ghost do the work because the government of heaven doesn't come from the White House. It comes in your house. And you can't change the White House, but you can change your house. What happens in your house? And he says, when I come, if there's anything else, I will, I will come and, and, and repay. I, I'm, I'm going to pick up some stuff tonight or my next session, whatever that is. But I, but, but I want to close by saying that if the question was, who is my neighbor? And the bottom line is the neighbor was actually the Samaritan. It was Jesus. Now, I said that I, hope that I hope you don't get mad about this. This is a tough one here because I had a woman jump up in Texas and grab her chest and walk out on me. She, was, she, was so, she thought I blasphemed the Holy Ghost. A Samaritan is somebody who's half Jewish and half something else. And I said this, and it just shocked her to the core. I said, Jesus was not 100% Jew. I know you just brought your brain and came here for a moment. His mother was, but his daddy <laughs> was the same one you got. He's the good Samaritan. And and, and let me say this in closing. What he did was just up the equivalent of love the Lord your God with all your heart to making the next one just as important, love your neighbor like you love yourself. In other words, you've got this concept of a God who lives over here, and you can come to these nice isolated buildings and, 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 and love God, but this is about a love for your neighbor because... The same love you have for your neighbor is how you love God. And that's not a work. That's something the Holy Spirit has to work inside of you. But what shifts everything, you know what's amazing to me is how this has even shifted my attitude towards other people. That I pretended like I accepted them. But this really lets you let your guard down and say, he receives you like you are. If you don't change, somebody said to me one time, said, can I go to heaven if I smoke? I said, I think you can go to heaven faster if you smoke. <laughs> it's not a heaven hell issue. It's a, I mean, it's a health issue. But we're going to send that guy to hell, but I'm going to tear up two or three pies. That's acceptable. But I also believe that the Holy Spirit has the power in the climate of freedom to really work in our lives to bring change. My brother works right now with a group called Life or Drugs. This opioid addiction is a national nightmare. And people that come into that are looking for help. We're not just, listen, I don't know how you are, but there's some stuff in my life still that I'm trusting him for. Because... I realized a long time, it's not my might or my power, but it is the spirit of the Lord that really brings change. And in that climate of freedom and space, God will transform lives. You've been gracious this morning. God bless you.